It's been a weird year. And while we shake off the hangover of the phony election in Toronto, it's important to remember now more than ever, we have to be our own advocates in this city. If there was ever a time for everyday citizens to coalesce around common goals and push for the badly needed changes required to see this town thrive, now is that time. And so, without too much sermonizing, we now rejoin the city-building initiatives already in progress. This is Spacing Radio. We are back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show... We catch up with urbanist architect Brent Bellamy, who's going to help us make sense of the Winnipeg election. We talk to Cameron McLeod of transit advocacy group Code Red TO about a troubling new TTC study. And senior editor Dylan Reed and contributor Adam Bunch tease the latest in Spacing's book series, available now. But first. Last winter was, by many accounts, a catastrophe when it came to sheltering street-involved people in Toronto. A deadly cold snap led to a desperate plea with the city to allow using the armories as shelter space. People were being turned back into the cold or given poor or misleading information about where to take shelter. It was a failure on many fronts. Kathy Crow is a street nurse, distinguished visiting practitioner at Ryerson University, and member of the Order of Canada. She is among the people challenging the city to do better when it comes to protecting homeless Torontonians. And we asked her what we can expect this year. Stand by. Kathy, first of all, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, I wanted to start by just uh, calling back to last winter, uh, which you described uh, in an interview as catastrophic. And I think that's fair to say. I mean, people were up in arms. People were very concerned. Uh, There was a call to open the armories because there simply wasn't enough shelter space or people were being turned away. Can you can you paint that picture for people that, you know, it's only been a year, but people forget? Sure. Well, we just knew the shelters had been full. They'd been over 90 percent capacity for gosh, way over 15 years, and they were it, they were much more crowded last winter, and it was evident that people were sleeping outside in all kinds of dangerous places, and there simply wasn't enough shelter. We had been appealing to the city for, for a couple of years, really intently, for them to open more facilities, so we just kept pushing, mm-hmm. and, um, and we had to use a lot of pretty <clears throat> unusual... Um, tactics to win last year. Uh, But it all came together in a matter of about 30 days, actually. We just went bang, 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 one thing after another. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, first of all, um, we began 
Well, honestly, I, I tweeted to Adam Vaughn one night mm-hmm. saying, I need the armories. And he's, of course, my MP, but also federal MP. And um, and he said, uh, what's your email? Uh, I'll get back to you tomorrow. And by noon the next day, I had in writing from the from the National Defense Ministry, a commitment to offer the armory to the city if they asked. Right. And that was after the city saying, no, 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 we can't use that and blah, blah. So, um, and then after that commitment, then city council voted no to the armory. So that just enraged, I think, the whole city. Um, The petition that I had going uh, increased dramatically. Um, And then we just began essentially hammering the city with um, press conference after press conference. It was almost daily press events, um, mostly hosted by Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam. Mm-hmm. We had faith groups there doing one. We had health providers against poverty doing one. We had other frontline workers, and we just kept pushing. And then combined with that, um, actor and director Sarah Polly had stepped up. We had worked with her over the years, and she stepped up and just said, what can I do to help Kathy? And I, I gave her a whole list of possible ideas, and she picked the hardest one, I think, <laughs> and went into um, one of the 24-hour respite sites, um, which had conditions that were absolutely shocking, and she went in, and she was shocked, and she wrote an op-ed for the Toronto Star that ended with open the dam armories, Mayor right. Tory. So then we kept going in. We did um, photography. We did hidden photography, like secret photography, I mean, taking pictures of some of the conditions. And then I called the uh, Toronto Ombudsman and said, you know, you have to see this facility. And uh, she said, Kathy, I've seen them all. And I said, no, you haven't seen this one. And then she came in and we toured a couple places and... Um, it was really the exposing of it that that then led to city council decision. The mayor finally opened Fort York or Moss Park Armory. Right. I think the calls began <clears throat> early December, and by January, yeah. they were open. And my petition actually had started the previous year. Right. Like it, it, I just couldn't. T- I couldn't morally take it down, saying I'd lost because we still needed it. So yeah. I just kept it up, and thank God I did because then people it gave people something to do. Yeah. And you mentioned the ombudsman uh, just this last spring. There was an ombudsman report about uh, the sort of communication uh, network that the shelters operate under. And it was pretty excoriating. It uh, called it outdated, inaccurate and inconsistent information. You had Mm -hmm. situations where people were calling to see if there was space available in a shelter and being told no when in fact there was. It was just kind of a mess. Can you speak about that? Yeah. So um, a former frontline worker um, also used audio taping to prove that Mm -hmm. and and shared it with the media. And so we had situations where um, frontline workers, including nurses, and this fellow, Doug Doug Johnson, were calling and and it was being proven that they were being told misinformation and that there were no shelter beds where there were these emergency spots. So it was just catastrophic. Everything the city was doing was... um, quite incompetent, like Mm -hmm. for a city this size. Um, And um, so one of the locations, you know, that was being operated, um, for example, had no showers Mm -hmm. and it had doors that opened, the toilet doors opened right onto the common area. Like, or sorry, there were no doors. I mean, 
and the, where the doors were just opened onto the common area. Right, fairly inhumane. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think what happened was it just finally got exposed. Mm-hmm. And for sure, these conditions were not meeting what we call the Un- United Nations standards for refugee camps. And it did lead to this very scathing report by the Ombudsman, for sure. And this year, um, about to be released probably any day now, are new standards for those respite sites. Now, the other thing that happened was all of those winter sites that are now called respite sites, they couldn't close come spring this past year. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they couldn't close come summer. (laughs) They had to keep them open, and a couple they had to juggle in terms of one had to close then they opened a, a, a rink to use and that's how bad the problem is right they just announced that they they opened one uh november 14th uh queen elizabeth building yeah so now we've got actually 10 we've okay. got eight respite sites um we've got two drop-ins for women that are overnight which are which is still shocking to think that a drop-in center has to be used overnight as an emergency kind of shelter because uh, it's not equipped with cots or beds and you know last year women would have to sign up to be on the lottery to get a recliner chair to sleep in mm-hmm. and then now the city has purchased these domes that are going to go up okay uh, you know these re- these respite sites uh, these are temporary sites or as needed sort of pop up mm. and well you know they're it's a new term. Okay. It used to be called, we used to call them warming centers. Okay. But the problem is so bad now that I think the city knows they can't ever close them. Right. So now they're open and they stay open. And once these domes go up, I don't see any end in sight for um, removing them. Right. That's how bad the situation is. <clears throat> you know, we've got six, 800 people in these respite sites and then we have the Out of the Cold program. Right, which is a sort of volunteer, faith, yeah. faith-based... Yeah, uh, and I think, you know, a tipping point was the Parliament Street fire that happened in the high-rise in St. James Town, right. where everybody in that building became homeless, essentially. Overnight, yeah. And many still are, and some are now beginning to turn up in shelters, we're told. And the city couldn't handle that catastrophe. Yeah. So... My thinking is the city has bought these four domes, ten million dollars. They're gonna they're putting up three. One's being put up literally right now. The other two are opening. They're being put up, constructed in January. The fourth one is on hold for now. Right. But we know they need it. And I don't I honestly do not see any possibility that they can close them down because there's no housing. And, you know, this is National Housing Week. Yeah. Um, National Housing Day is this Thursday. Um, and that commemorates the day that the Big City Mayor's Caucus uh, declared homelessness a national disaster uh, after TDRC did, Toronto right. Disaster Relief Committee. And so, you know, I know Mayor Tory spoke this morning at some event for National Housing Week, and we just don't see any end. I, don't just, I just don't see any... End in sight. Right. Um, the federal minister is doing an announcement in Winnipeg today. Um, all we see are reannouncements of national housing strategy, mm-hmm. monies, 
and I don't see monies coming. And um, we anticipate that the federal money will come directly to Toronto instead of to the Ontario government. And that'll be fine. But when is it coming? Right. And um, yeah, so given that, do you see this year being substantially different from last year? Or are we kind of same in, in the same boat, just a repeat of last year, yeah, which was catastrophic? So part of me feels a bit of relief in that we have standards now for the respite sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have the sites, but then the other part of me realizes that more people are falling into homelessness mm-hmm. and the conditions are so bad <laughs> that I think things are overall worse. Right. Um, but it's a little it's a little touch and go to say. I mean, as we see the sites open, we'll watch how they go. If things don't go well in them, we will enter and we will take action. Um, But we still have this 31-year-old program called the Out of the Cold program where people are moving nightly. And, you know, the population um, of people who are homeless are extremely, extremely run down. And so the health burden is tough. Um, Average age of death is 49. So I think we will... We are seeing more deaths. They're just not being reported as right. frequently. Um, and so I think it's overall it's worse. Um, and finally, uh, another thing that's changed since last year is uh, a new provincial government. Um, it looked for a while like they may come down uh, against a sort of um, pop-up uh, uh, detox clinics, or not detox mm. clinics, uh, overdose Supervised prevention. injection sites, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then they, they sort of, it doesn't seem like they're going to go after them now, but uh, how, how has the provincial landscape changed and how does that affect the city this year? Well, I think it, every day we're seeing dark signs from the province. Um, they've made the, um, the new application process for supervised injection sites um, more bureaucratic and complicated and little agencies that do the good work are going to have to have go through a really hard time reapplying. So that's challenging. Uh, and I think they're worried that the the correct number that is needed will not be approved. Um, not seeing the minimum wage go up is dramatically hard. Mm-hmm. Um, not seeing the promised uh, social assistance rate goes up going up will affect people. Um, what what the province could be doing is doing an inventory of empty buildings that they could be offering to the city. They did give the city um, use of George Street, a George Street location for one of the respite sites. Mm-hmm. So that was that, that was the previous government, though, that did that. Right. Um, I think people are quite terrified about what will happen next, what will get cut next. Um, and um, the province has signed on. Technically, the Liberal government, when they were in power, signed on to the uh, federal national housing strategy, but it's not clear whether monies are going to flow smoothly to the Ford government. Mm -hmm. That's why I was suggesting that people are feeling that the Toronto allotment of money might come directly to Toronto. So that could mean that we don't get a provincial um, matching amount of money. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing anything from this government in terms of emergency rent supplements or other initiatives that could immediately help house people. That should have happened for the Parliament Street fire folks. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're just... Not there. Yeah. And uh, I guess final thoughts as we go into the coldest and frankly, unfortunately, the deadliest months of the year. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we've got a smaller city council. Um, we've got the same mayor. Um, people are people. I just people really, really have to know who their councillor is so that they can advocate mm-hmm. and support our our calls for for help when we need it. Um, mayor Tory has not been strong on these issues, um, despite rhetoric. Um, so I just urge people to, you know, do what they can. I use this formula called a third, a third, a third, which is if you're, if you're going to give, if you're going to donate or allocate time or energy to this issue, mm-hmm. think about allocating a third to organizations that directly help homeless people. So that could be a shelter in your neighborhood or a drop-in center. Think about uh, allocating a third to housing. Mm-hmm. So it could be a nonprofit housing organization in your community and a third to advocacy. So that means supporting groups like Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, for example. So like, you know, don't put all of your energy into collecting socks and old clothes, like do a right. few other things too. And make sure your counselor knows that you're very upset about what you're seeing literally in your neighborhood in shelters and on the streets. All right, Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Now, while Toronto was dealing with its bizarre election, Winnipeg was doing its own soul-searching. In October, Winnipeggers not only went to the polls to choose their mayor and city councillors, there was a referendum over whether or not to open Portage and Main, the downtown's major intersection, to pedestrian crossing. That's right. You cannot cross the intersection as a pedestrian. Only cars allowed. In 2018. Brent Bellamy has been a tireless advocate for opening the intersection to street-level crossing, and we reached him in Winnipeg. Uh, So I spent uh, the summer sort of following uh, the election over here in Toronto, uh, but uh, I never forgot that uh, Winnipeg also had an election, and not just a mayoral election, but uh, actually a referendum at the same time about whether or not uh, it is desirable to open Portage and Main, the, the major downtown intersection in Winnipeg, uh, to pedestrians, to allow pedestrians to cross at street level instead of going into uh, sort of underground mall space that uh, is currently the situation. Uh, so can you tell me a bit about why that issue ended up on the ballot? Oof, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it starts uh, in 1978 when they um, built uh, to lure a Toronto developer to Winnipeg to build a skyscraper at Portage and Main. They sort of gave them a 40-year agreement to drive traffic down pedestrian traffic into their underground shopping mall, mm-hmm. sort of to give it a, a little bit of a leg up so people would actually have to go down there. And it's coming up. At uh, next year, that 40-year agreement comes up. So it kind of in the last election four years ago, it was an issue that that the mayor ran on, and he had he's actually been every mayor except for the one before him has run on a platform of opening Portage and Main back up. So it's not a new idea. It's something that's been going on for four decades, two generations in Winnipeg. So it's always been part of our discussion. Mm-hmm. And the mayor won it one last time on that platform. And it just never really happened. Yeah. And so as we got to this to the, this election, every mayor candidate, every council candidate, 
in the city sort of saw it as low-hanging fruit because it's a controversial issue. It was the number one platform policy or policy for every mayor candidate and every council candidate. And so I think to remove it from the discussion, it became a plebiscite. And it, it worked. It got rid of the people stopped talking about it in mayoral debates and things like that, where it probably would have overtaken it and there would have been no discussion otherwise in any other any other topic, I think. Right. Uh, as you said, uh, Mayor Brian Bowman, he, he ran on opening it up uh, in the last election. Um, do you think... Um, and, and so having done that, having run on that issue and winning, it seems to me that he had a mandate to get it done. Uh, what happened? Yeah, he absolutely did. And I think there, if it had opened, I mean, there was lots of momentum for it. Um, if it had opened, I think it would have just been part of, you know, city building and, and moving forward and people would have accepted it. And by now it would have been just a normal thing. And we would have wondered why we talked about it for 40 years. But um, I'm not sure exactly why it didn't didn't happen. They moved towards it. There was a traffic study done. There was some uh, engineering work done, and it just never really got there. I, you know, time flies, I guess, when you're having fun. <laughs> and and the I think the the plan was to get it open for the Canada Games, which was actually two years ago. Right. So it so it wouldn't become part of the next election cycle, and. I don't know, you know, government moves slowly, I guess, and it just it just never happened, which is a shame because I don't think it would have been, once it became a plebiscite, the whole city focused on it, and there almost wasn't an, a, a mayoral election this time. It really, all the discussion was about Portage and Maine, which is a crazy thing, really, to, to cross the street becoming the number one talked about water cool issue in the city. was was really weird. Right, and some people feel that, um, you know, by... By Mayor, Mayor Bowman in deciding to make this uh, a referendum issue was kind of passing the buck because uh, he's obviously popular enough to be reelected. Uh, mm-hmm. But some people thought that he was maybe concerned that that was an issue that could sink him. Do you think he maybe abdicated responsibility by making it a, a plebiscite? I think it probably wasn't about him specifically. Mm-hmm. The last time a sitting mayor lost in Winnipeg was a long, long time ago. I don't think he was in any danger, but I think the danger was a progressive council, um, you know, because it, it is easier to sort of pick off single issues like that if you're running for council. And I think the fear was that even if the mayor gets reelected, um, there will be a, a whole group of non-progressive councillors that make it difficult to do progressive things much beyond Portage and Maine, like when we're talking about bike lanes and rapid transit and all those things. Mm-hmm. If you have a council that's not part of that idea or not pushing that idea, it makes it makes governing for the next four years much more difficult. And so I think that was really the driving force behind it, not necessarily the fact that the mayor would have lost. I'm not sure what the impact would have been. The, the plebiscite did spiral out of control and it did become a huge thing. So it might have had an impact on the mayor election, but I think the greater fear was that it would we would be stuck with a, a group of non-progressive councillors and there would be nothing really, uh, no progress happening in the city over the next four years. Right, and the past four years have been kind of a, a progressive boom. There's probably more bike lane expansion in that city uh, than, than there has been in, in Toronto. 
Yeah. You know, there's been good things happening for sure. And I, there was a fear that all that would come crashing down because the council counselors were, were lining up or, or candidates for council were lining up. And the very first, if you'd get a thing in the mail and the very first thing at the top of the, the pamphlet was, I refused to open Portage Maine. It will never open. Like it was just a, it was in bold letters at the top of, of everybody's election um, pamphlets and platforms and websites. And it was really incredible. And it, because it wasn't really just about the intersection, it was a way to say who you were. For other mayor candidates, it was to say, I'm not Mayor Bowman. And for councillor candidates, it was it was a way to say, I'm with you, suburban driver. You know, I'm, I'm one of you. It had nothing to do with the intersection, really. It was a way to define who you were in one sentence. Right. And that was the divide, the suburban versus urban. Uh, like I've seen maps of who voted mm-hmm. yes or no. And the people who voted yes opened the intersection were largely people who actually lived in that area. And the people who voted no seemed to be on the outskirts, probably only treat that downtown neighborhood as a thing to drive through instead of a place to be. Yeah. Is that fair it to say? It was fascinating. Uh, I didn't think that that would, be, that would happen in Winnipeg because Winnipeg isn't an urban city. Like I often hear discussions about Toronto, the, you know, the urbanites against the suburbanites, where Winnipeg is a suburban city. It doesn't have a huge downtown population. Mm-hmm. So I was interested to see how the breakdown happened. And it was exactly what you would expect in every other city. It was a perfect donut. It was a red outside and a blue inside. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure... I've been trying to think of why that was the result. It, it's not really urban because even even the inner city of Winnipeg is is suburban. Yeah. Um, you know, it's old, it's um, streetcar suburbia, but it's still suburban. And and so it it did surprise me that, and everybody drives. Even people in those neighborhoods drive everywhere. There's there's not a lot of walkable communities in Winnipeg, so it did surprise me. But my thought was after you know lying in bed thinking about it night after night afterwards, um, is that if you, if your drive, if you commute an hour each way to work, if you, you know, you spend two hours a day in your car, the commute is really a huge part of your life. And it's, you know, any suggestion of affecting that is a real sore issue. It's a real, um, you know, difficult thing to, to accept mm-hmm. and because it is such part of your life. You think about it all the time. I spend two days or two hours every single day in my car, but the people in the inner city, you know, they walk to work or they bike to work or they have a four minute commute, five minute commute. So when you suggest something like, you know, let's make downtown better. Yeah. It'll cost you maybe a minute or 30 seconds in your car. They don't really care. And it doesn't bother them. They don't have this immediate um, negative reaction to it, where people who do spend two hours a day in their car, they're, they're react to it no matter what. Like yeah. It doesn't matter if they go there or not. I spend two hours in my car. Don't try to make it any worse. So to me, that's maybe why there was that divide. But it was very fascinating, for sure. I was shocked when I saw that that map. And to me, that that is the only you know, viable argument against opening it up. I mean, I disagree in the sense that I think that the city should have different priorities. But that is like, yeah, okay, if, if time is that precious to you, if, if your life is spent so much in your car, uh, then yeah, I understand not wanting to open it up. But other things, red herrings have been thrown around, like it will ruin the economy of Winnipeg or that more <laughs> buses will hit people or, uh, yeah. um, you know, that, that it was a safety concern. And uh, yeah. that, that often came up because, you know, as you said, this, uh, the original like underground mall design thing was, was part of a deal with developers. It wasn't with, for safety concerns or anything like yeah. that. 
it's an incredible uh, Portage in Maine holds an, a place of mythology in Winnipeg, and mm-hmm. it's just an incredible. And as part of the group that was trying to dislodge that, it was phenomenal to to experience it firsthand. People like I was actually there was a commercial on the radio running. It's still running. It has nothing to do with the plebiscite. It was a, a motor oil commercial that started off by saying, Environment Canada has declared that Portage in Maine is officially the coldest place on the planet. Mm-hmm. And if you're driving through it, you need to use this motor oil. Right. So that's sort of the embedded feeling in Winnipeg is that it is the coldest place on earth. It's the widest intersection ever. And if you ever wanted to cross it, you would. it's super dangerous. Even though Portage Avenue and Main Street are the same width for kilometers leading down to like for like until they hit Lake Winnipeg really or Regina. They're the same width all the way. So when you cross the street it's no different. But there's this myth about it's super dangerous and super big and super cold and and we had to really try to dislodge those those myths and it was an impossible thing to do. And and even the traffic. There was a really comprehensive traffic study done that showed that the impact was minimal. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it logically there's a stoplight on the next block in every single direction. So, of course, just adding one more means means very little. But there's this idea that Portage and Maine is somehow like a freeway, and it's adding a, a stoplight on a freeway, and it will just cause traffic mayhem all the way down. So what happens now? As you say, the, the deal with developers signed 40 years ago, uh, it, it ends uh, sometime this year, and, and then do they re-up, or how, how does that work? And, and, and is this the fight to open the intersections still continue? It's an interesting thing. It'll be interesting to see what does happen because there's, I think there's five property owners now and each one of them has essentially a veto and can, if one of them decides that they want to keep the intersection closed, it will stay closed for another 40 years. The the agreement just goes back and and starts again, which is unbelievable to think about. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think that's going to happen they they all support opening it, but who knows what can happen? And they they've also the city hasn't spent a lot of money at Portage of Maine in a long time. The walls are crumbling. It's a uh, you know it's not a place that looks like a 21st century city. And I know the property owners are upset about that and could use it as some kind of, of bargaining tool to get the city to fix things or or to you know I don't know what's going to happen to be honest. It'll be interesting to see. I, I can't imagine that one of the owners would want to, to have that sort of hanging on them, that they were the ones that closed Portage and Maine again for another 40 years. Right. So it will probably be a new agreement of some kind will come out. I don't think, I, I mean, definitely in this next four years, it's not going to open. Um, they are, there is going to have to be extensive work done in the next sort of two to probably eight years on the on the intersection itself because it's a building underground and the the roof membrane of that building is now 40 years old and and has to be replaced all the property owners around it are replacing their their roof membranes of their buildings that are underground so the city's gonna have to do that as well so the, the barriers will likely have to come down in some fashion right and so we will face that discussion again what what do we do we actually put barriers back up do we just leave it with curbs and and hope people don't cross the street? There there will be another discussion coming. That's that's the unique thing about it is there's a a, a whole other discussion looming on the horizon, and we're going to start the debate again. 
pretty much every Torontonian has a TTC gripe. Lately, the service has been called out for its massive overcrowding. At the same time, total ridership has begun to decline, despite the population growing year after year. Code Red TO, a nonpartisan transit advocacy group including spacing columnist Tricia Wood, has released a report called Mixed Signals, which compares Toronto's transit network to a number of comparable North American cities. Co-founder Cameron McLeod breaks it down for us. Cameron, first of all, thanks for doing this. Happy to be here. Uh, I think let's start at the beginning. What is Code Red TO? Uh, Code Red TO is a nonpartisan transit advocacy group. It's a bunch of volunteers that got together uh, annoyed at the situation where we see politicians spreading lies about transit and really pushing to uh, put better information out there Mm -hmm. so that people can evaluate transit proposals. And when they hear about something like a subway that will go to Pickering, they can actually evaluate that and think about what that would entail and the costs and the reasons it might may or may not be a good idea. Right. Was there like a catalytic event that sort of uh, forged Code Red TO together? Uh, Probably the uh, municipal election of 2010. With uh, uh, Rob Ford becoming mayor of Toronto, a lot of noise got into the transit conversation Mm -hmm. after a relatively strong stretch of signal. So it was really uh, a a challenge to be a transit advocate and hear people advocating for things that simply were untrue. Right. Uh, You're talking about the Rob Ford era and sort of subways, subways, subways. uh, Right. I I think that brought a lot of people online. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, you know, what, what are some specific like areas of concern for, for the group? Uh, to be honest, we have a history in Toronto and in Ontario of making political decisions around very expensive infrastructure mm-hmm. instead of making rational evidence-based decisions around the city that we want to see, the transit system that we need, uh, where we want growth to happen. Right. We used to uh, have transit plans that were built around the idea of, uh, you know, tackling, uh, tackling density, tackling ridership and need. And uh, over multiple decades, not just recently, we've made decisions that were simply based on what's happening in the next election campaign. In the 1980s, there was a plan to build the relief line that everybody agrees is really desperately needed. And that was sacrificed uh, by actually both NDP and, you know, liberal and conservative uh, politicians and activists. And what we ended up getting was just the Shepherd subway. Right. And people who ride the Shepherd subway absolutely love it. It's useful when it's going where they need to go. And that's fine. Uh, All new transit is super fun. We've got a shiny new subway extension to York University. And that's very helpful for the people who use that specific route. But it's not where we have the most desperate need. We still have the most desperate need to relieve pressure within the downtown core Mm -hmm. so that North York and Scarborough commuters can get to the office and then can get home again. And uh, we spend a lot of time arguing about things in the wrong part of the city or the wrong type of technology uh, because we fetishize certain things and we don't have good examples that allow us to just stand back and trust planners or trust engineers, trust ridership models to say this is really where we should spend our limited funds. Right. 
politicians of every stripe want to be the ones that bring a subway or something fancy to their particular ward or riding to their constituents so that they can pose for the ribbon cutting. And I was just going to say, photos of ribbon cutting are very, very popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, the subway extension to York University had uh, at least one ribbon cutting a year during construction. Right. And... Uh, it's really hard to it's really hard to get a photo of someone just paying the bill. Yeah. Right? The extension to York University costs the TTC thirty million dollars a year extra in subsidy. Right. So opening more subway actually made the TTC's budget more difficult. And it's very hard to convince people that they need to pay for that, right? Should right. we raise fares even more, even though they're rising far faster than inflation? Should we try to find uh, you know, road tolls? Should we find sales taxes? There's a lot of different ways to pay for stuff, but nobody likes those conversations. Right. And just paying the bills is uh, sort of the theme of your report that just launched, uh, the Mixed Signals report. Uh, a lot of highlights to pull out of it, but one of the main things that struck me is that uh, uh, Toronto's transit system, unlike a, a lot of other comparator cities, you named Chicago, Vancouver, amongst uh, a, a number of them, uh, relies uh, two-thirds of, of the operating budget relies on the fare box, which is different from these other uh, comparator cities. That's right, yeah. Toronto has the lowest overall subsidy. We only put about 90 cents mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, uh, of subsidy towards each rider that gets on the system, uh, which is you know less than half of what we see in any comparator city. Uh, even similar cities, Chicago, Boston, Vancouver, Montreal, we want to look at those, and the subsidy position is always much higher. Yeah. And what that means is that we are far more dependent upon the fare box to do anything for the TTC operations budget, and anything that disrupts ridership all of a sudden dramatically disrupts the TTC's budget and planning. Right. And they might have a plan to increase service on your bus route, which could bring in new riders, could reduce congestion, can really help build up the city. But all of a sudden, they can't afford to pay that driver that day. Right. They have to make dramatic changes mid-year just to deal with how ridership is changing. In a lot of other cities, there are multiple revenue sources and dedicated revenue sources like sales taxes, parking taxes, uh, fuel taxes, and subsidies from regional governments that allow them to make more predictable decisions. And absolutely, they might have to make a change year over year or every few years about how service is organized, but they actually can see those changes coming and they can react to them. In Los Angeles, only 5% of the operating budget it comes from fares. And they have much lower ridership, but they can make very different decisions because they have dedicated sales taxes. And in fact, those sales taxes were approved by referendum. Voters chose to pay more for transit through their taxes. Right. And so one of the alarms uh, that you're sounding about this is this sort of uh, downward spiral, uh, almost self-fulfilling prophecy of doom where, you know, the, the less you put into transit, the less people are inclined to take transit. And then people say, you know, politicians look at at the declining numbers and say, well, why do we even have this bus route if no one takes it when they would take it if it was, you know, quality, reliable service that would maybe uh, get them out of a car or, uh, you know, stop them from taking an Uber or a taxi or what have you. Yeah, that's exactly right. I actually, I sat in the office of the deputy mayor a few years ago and we chatted about transit and he expressed concern about buses that run empty in the middle of the night or even the middle of the day and whether or not those buses should be allocated in a different way Mm -hmm. for the riders that are stuck standing in the cold. And it's an important thing to think about with public transit that it is a public service and it's creating mobility and accessibility for residents even when the bus is mostly empty 
there are people that are using that service and those people need to get places. And when the bus disappears, that changes the behavior for those people. It changes what's accessible to them and what they're able to do, Mm -hmm. but it actually changes their decisions even when the bus comes 15 minutes later. Maybe that 15 minutes later bus isn't acceptable and we end up with more cars on the road, more Ubers and taxis being called, uh, you know, different decisions about that. Even just little things like, am I going to get to the doctor by a certain time? So I make my appointment, but big stuff too. Like, can I apply for that job? Yeah, that's it. It interrupts the entire like social mobility of the fabric of the city if you don't have this system to rely on uh, beyond just like, you know, trying to reduce congestion or all those good things that come with transit. Uh, but um, what are some of the other issues that you flagged in, in, in this report? Uh, so there are uh, three big things that we really called out in the report that we wanted to make sure that were spelled out in a, in a visual way mm-hmm. so that uh, you know the public and politicians could look at this and, and really absorb some of the important stuff that transit nerds like me already know and are, are already familiar with. Um, the funding structure is the big one, right? Depending on the on the fare box and having such a very low subsidy mm-hmm. just means that the TTC and Toronto Transit in general is quite vulnerable to changes in the environment around it. Um, we've also talked a lot within Toronto about burying transit and building expensive tunnels. And it's really popular to talk about, oh, I want to have a subway because we have no useful examples already running to show us all the other ways that transit can be built that can do amazing, amazing things. When the Crosstown opens or when the Finch West LRT opens, that will be a bit of a sea change for Toronto because we will have working examples as long as they open on time and perform well. We'll be able to say, look, here's this amazing thing and look how much we did per dollar. Right here, compared to building this very, very expensive, you know, probably four billion dollar tunnel with just one stop. You know, to give one example, that's uh, you know in a lot of debates right now. Uh, so we need to think about things like why is there no bus lane where the bus just controls that lane on Lawrence on Dufferin? You know, and there are different parts of the city with packed buses and lots of congestion. And we need to think about what's happening to transit vehicles and all the people in those transit vehicles that are stuck behind a car that has one person in it. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to think about bus rapid transit, true BRT, where we dedicate sections of the road and we block it off so cars can't get in there and get in the way. We really do have to think about whether or not, you know, cars are taking up in certain areas, taking up more space than is fair given yeah. the number of people they serve. Right, we saw that with the King Street pilot. The King Street pilot took the uh, streetcar performance, and streetcars deliver three quarters of the actual people that travel through King Street, and gave priority to that. Right, and absolutely, some car drivers were inconvenienced a little bit, and we saw a very tiny nudge in travel times for some car drivers on some streets. But we saw twenty thousand more people per day being able to use King Street. So it's a huge win for a very small cost. And more reliable service on King Exactly. Well. That reliability is actually what draws those people, right. right? It's not about travel time, okay? You already know the streetcar is going to travel at roughly a certain speed. What you care about is, will it be a consistent speed? When's it going to show up for you? And when are you going to get to the office or the doctor or the store or the school? And if you can plan around that, transit becomes a beautiful, powerful option for that mobility. Uh, The third thing that we talked about is how TTC ridership is dropping. In a lot of cities across North America, transit ridership is dropping, and there are a lot of factors that contribute to that. But one thing uh, we found is that the TTC's monthly pass is much more expensive 
than many, many other cities yeah. in North America, in, in the US and Canada. And that creates a barrier to entry. If someone doesn't have $146 saved up at the beginning of the month, and they know they will need a Metro Pass for their transit usage during the month, then they may just drop back to using tokens or even just cash. Right? They may not, for many people in our city, they don't have the money available to buy discounted tokens. They are scraping and scrounging for each day's transit travels. And by having a system where you have to save up the money first, that actually privileges people who have that income available. And if you take the TTC twice a day, seven days a week, you can spend $200 in a month on TTC cash fares instead of a $146 Metro Pass. So we recommend things like considering dropping the fare multiplier so that Metro Passes actually become somewhat cheaper. In Boston, our fares are roughly comparable when it comes to cash fares, but their monthly pass is actually a third less expensive than right. the TTC's Metro Pass. So when we talk about ridership growth, I mean, I, I think the alarm first sounded when uh, we had a predictable percentage of ridership growth. Uh, and then we weren't meeting these growth targets. Now you're saying that ridership itself is starting to decline. Uh, so ridership itself uh, as a per capita measure right. is, is uh, declining. I would have to double check the numbers to see if we've had an actual, uh, you know, real, real numbers decline. But Toronto is growing by tens of thousands of people a year. Right. And if those people aren't joining the transit riders, that means our commuter mode share is dropping. It means that our budget position is dropping as the city has to provide these services. And uh, we want to make sure that, you know, we're building, continuing to build this great city. Right. We have uh, the second highest ridership in the U.S. and Canada for transit. We have the second highest commuter mode share. Uh, but that's built based on strengths that we have basically just been letting sit. We've been resting on our laurels a little bit, and we've been focusing on uh, you know, property taxes at the rate of inflation. We've been focusing on canceling vehicle taxes and things like that uh, for, very, for various reasons, and those are all very big fights, but we have to think about who we're privileging, right? right. The TTC fare has risen faster than inflation, whereas other costs have not. Right. And so when we talk about this lack of funding, uh, you know, where does the buck stop or does, is it multiple levels of government? I mean, we used to get a, a subsidy from the provincial government before amalgamation. Uh, Mike Harris's government put an end to that. Uh, and then no subsequent government ever wanted to be the person, uh, to, you know, once the, guy, once the provincial government of any party doesn't have to pay that anymore, who's going to be the one that says, you know what, we're going to turn back the clock and we're going to start paying that. But, uh, you know, is, is it the province, but also does the city take some of the blame? Absolutely. Uh, I'm quite happy to lay the blame at everybody's feet. Right. Uh, and that includes you and me. That includes us. We are the voters and we are not rewarding as, as a group. We're not rewarding political parties and politicians who will pay for the things they promise. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's just that's a classic political thing. Right. That's not about transit. That's just about life. Right. We love to promise a shiny thing and then we like to figure out who else can pay for it. And if nobody else is going to pay for it, maybe it's not going to happen. But absolutely. We've had multiple governments from multiple parties at the provincial level. We've had multiple federal governments that are worried about the economy, but are not actually paying attention to this important component of whether or not the economy functions properly. Can people get to work? Uh, we've had municipal politicians at both councils and mayors that are very focused on what can we do in this election campaign? What promise can I make to not scare off higher income voters mm -hmm. as opposed to ensuring that 
all the voters and all the residents of the city, even the non-voters, can get to their jobs, can get to their schools and build up our city. We are a, a huge government, uh, you know, Canada's sixth largest government is what the, what the city of Toronto likes to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are busy pretending to be a tiny little city where everybody can have a car. Right. And that's just not realistic. And we have to think about what our future state looks like. So new provincial government, uh, new mandate for the returning mayor, John Tory. Uh, what are your messages to them? Uh, I'd really like the provincial government to uh, m- ensure they're informed about transit and following through on promises that were made during the election campaign around ensuring uh, stable and increased funding towards transit. Uh, that was a, that was a key promise by the new government. Uh, I'd like the the mayor to really keep pushing, and absolutely the mayor has been pushing. Uh, but we're behind. We're decades behind, and we've got to push harder. And uh, if we balance a need for transit operations and capital against being nervous about tiny property tax adjustments, uh, we're not going to catch up. Well, Cameron, thank you so much for taking the time. Finally, Spacing is launching its latest book, 50 Hidden Gems and Curiosities. And here to talk about what you'll find in those pages is Spacing Senior Editor Dylan Reed and author Adam Bunch. Well, we um, we basically wanted to do a book that had 50, uh, 50 things, places in Toronto that people might not know about that have some kind of interest or curiosity quality. Um, something that makes them unusual, interesting, something that people would enjoy discovering. Um, so it's, uh, we used to have, uh, for a long time, we had a hidden gems feature in the magazine. Right. And, um, so that kind of inspired this and we actually went back and found some of those hidden gems and kind of repurposed them for the book. But then we also had our contributors suggest some new ones. Um, so it's kind of a mix of old and new. Right. And Adam, you, uh, contributed a, a number of these, uh, gems to the book. Uh, anything, anything you want to highlight? Yeah, I think I've got, uh, five in there. Uh, yeah, all of which I feel <laughs> pretty passionate about. Uh, everything from Tabor Hill, which is near Lawrence and Bellamy and Scarborough, which looks like an ordinary park, but uh, with a small hill in it, but is actually a 700-year-old Wendat burial mound uh, that's really easy to miss, even if you're standing right next to it. You might not realize what it is, all the way up to maybe the most recent one's the Nyctophilia, uh, in Mount Dennis, which might just look like an infrastructure project gone wrong as <laughs> a twist of uh, street lamps. It's actually an art installation of 36 street lamps that uh, rotate through programmable colors, sort of like some of the bigger light displays downtown that uh, everybody knows. It's right. sort of a hidden one. And this project probably uh, dovetails nicely into your work with uh, the T.O. Dreams project, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm very interested and always sort of trying to uncover hidden stories about the city uh, and try to get people to know more about the hidden gems and oddities, uh, both physical ones and just narrative historical ones. Uh, So a book like this, I think, is a great way to do that, Uh, that a city of this size is just filled with so many stories. One person couldn't possibly know them all. So to have a bunch of people come together and sort of contribute the ones they feel uh, most passionate about is a great way to have people learn more and tell those stories and as a result end up preserving them too. The more we retell them, the more people know them. Places like uh, 
one of the entries that I contributed is about the Cube House, which mm-hmm. is one of the more bizarre homes in the city, which currently might be up for demolition because the developers bought the plot of land. And I think just by repeating those stories, you have a better chance of saving them when a moment like that comes up. Right. And Dylan, you said like we kind of pulled the idea from a, a feature that Spacing used to cover, uh, but uh, has anything surprising, uh, have you seen anything surprising uh, as you've sort of uh, edited this book and compiled it? Uh, oh yeah, I mean, um, Nyctophilia was one uh, that one that the ones that Adam did, which is a, a crazy kind of streetlight assemblage in Weston. Um, I mean, I, it's I, one of the reasons we wanted to do this was because uh, I think Toronto people think of it as a very prosaic city. It's all on a grid. It's all you know, it's a square, right. and uh, we kind of wanted to bring out the strange and marvelous in the city that people might not be aware of. So some of these places are places that. Um, you might walk by every day and not even realize. One of the ones that I, I really liked and, and wanted to include was a, a fountains, uh, a set of sculptural fountains right in the heart of downtown, uh, but that you'd never see. They're screened off by glass. Um, and I just happened upon them once, and I thought, what is this? I have no idea. This is the strangest thing ever. Right. Um, and one of our contributors, Sarah Hood, kind of delved into it and, and found the story behind them. Um, so it's kind of a, the book itself could be almost, you could think of it as almost an Easter egg hunt in Toronto um, where you could take the book and you could discover these things that uh, you would never have noticed in kind of the what seems like this fairly plain surface of Toronto. Right, and speaking to that sort of Easter egg hunt quality, uh, you know, who's this book for? Because I, I could see, you know, people who live in Toronto and they love their city. That this would obviously be a book for them. But uh, there is a map at the back uh, that lists uh, where these hidden gems are and how to find them. Uh, so maybe it's a sort of a, a counter tourist guide. Like, you know, of course you can go see the CN Tower. You can. You know, uh, you can do all the touristy things, but this is maybe uh, for this is advanced level tourism. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, I think of it for Torontonians. I think of it as a form of internal tourism. We often don't think of exploring our own city, and this is a way to be a tourist in the city. Uh, but exactly what you said as well. If someone's coming to Toronto and wants to find a kind of a different guide, um, something that's not the usual suspects, um, or the, maybe they've been to Toronto once or twice and they've already seen the same tower and they already went to the waterfront. What else do they do next? And this is a way to really explore it. And also it's a way to kind of bring you out of the usual spaces. So uh, quite a few of them are in areas that you wouldn't normally visit as a tourist, um, but that might draw you out. Um, as well as places that are in the normal tourist places, but that you might not notice because you, uh, because you're just, you know, because they're behind something or because they're hidden away a little bit. And if that's not enough for your creaking bookshelves or holiday shopping, we're launching another book, Toronto 2033, 10 short stories about the city's future. This is an exciting project that brings some of Canada's top speculative fiction authors to try and paint a picture of Toronto 15 years into the future. You're going to want to grab one for yourself. And that's the show. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your local street nurse, your Winnipeg expats, and your pub trivia team. As always, a like, share, subscribe, or rating on iTunes will go a long way to helping us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If 
you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, keep the pressure on. Cheers. Cheers.